I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned books and books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary, with writers, readers, publishers, old friends, new friends, and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books, reading, or writing. These will be informal, over-the-backyard-fence kind of conversations, the kind I and booksellers everywhere have each and every day. Salman Rushdie joins me on this episode of The Literary Life, recorded in front of a live audience at Miami-Dade College, just before the announcement of the Booker Prize, for which Salman's novel, Keyshot, was shortlisted. Well, Salman, we want to thank you for being here for this book. And I also want to congratulate you on the Booker. Uh, Keyshot has been nominated as it's part of the shortlist of the Booker Awards, uh, which will also change his travel schedule a little bit as well, right? Well, I have to, yeah. I mean, you have to, I have to be there. <laughs> um, it's the, the actual award ceremony, I think, is on October the 14th. Right. But now, you know, the Booker has become such a big deal that, that now they ask the shortlisted writers to come several days earlier because they arrange a series of group readings in different cities. Oh, that's wonderful. So like in Manchester, in the Cheltenham Festival, in the Royal Festival Hall in London, like the three days before the actual award ceremony, you I think the only one who's not coming is Margaret Atwood. Okay. Well we're gonna be we're <laughs> gonna be she, pulling for you. I think she's a little <laughs> she's a little busy right now. <laughs> yes. Um but anyway she and I, you know, are very old friends and and I mean, I think we met in like 1982 or something, you know, and we've been sending each other mischievous messages about, about the Booker. Um, 
you know, just sort of teasing each other about the about it. Uh, I said to her, the only writer in the world this year who does not need the Booker Prize is Margaret Atwood because she's going to she's going to have this like Michelle Obama sized success anyway. <laughs> And I mean, she's going to sell a billion copies, whether she wins the prize or not. So, you know, never mind the Booker Prize, Peggy Atwood. You know, <laughs> she wrote back to me and she said, I think we're on the list representing the still ambulatory old poops. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so we, you know, we just, we're just going to go and have a nice evening. Well, uh, I'll uh, be, I'll be pulling for you, Salman. What I thought we would do is we're going to start off with Salman giving a bit of a reading from just the beginning of the book so you get a sense of the flavor of what to expect from Kishat. So, Salman, if you I'll want read, to do yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, reading the beginning is you don't have to introduce it because it's the beginning. <laughs> One of the things about the book is it has these very long Dickensian chapter titles. So I'm going to read you the chapter title as well, chapter one. Kishat. An old man falls in love, embarks on a quest, and becomes a father. That's just chapter one. <laughs> there once lived, at a series of temporary addresses across the United States of America, a traveling man of Indian origin, advancing years, and retreating mental powers, who on account of his love for mindless television, had spent far too much of his life in the yellow light of tawdry motel rooms watching in excess of it, and had suffered a peculiar form of brain damage as a result. He devoured morning shows, daytime shows, late night talk shows, soaps, situation comedies, lifetime movies, hospital dramas, police series, vampire and zombie serials, the dramas of housewives from Atlanta, New Jersey, Beverly Hills, and New York, the romances and quarrels of hotel fortune princesses and self-styled shahs, the cavortings of individuals made famous by nudities, the 15 minutes of fame according to, accorded to young persons with large social media followings on account of their plastic surgery acquisition of a third breast, <laughs> or their post-rib removal figures that mimicked the impossible shape of the Mattel company's Barbie doll. Or even more simply, their ability to catch giant carp in picturesque settings, wearing only the tiniest of string bikinis, as well as singing competitions, cooking competitions, competitions for business propositions, competitions for business apprenticeship, competitions between remote-controlled monster vehicles, fashion competitions, competitions for the affections of both bachelors and bachelorettes, Baseball games, basketball games, football games, wrestling bouts, kickboxing bouts, extreme sports programming, and of course, beauty contests. He did not watch hockey. <laughs> <laughs> for, for people of his ethnic persuasion and tropical youth, hockey, which in the USA was renamed field hockey, was a game played on grass. To play field hockey on ice was, in his opinion, the absurd equivalent of ice skating on a lawn. <laughs> that was wonderful. Gives you, yes. It gives you a sense of the humor that's in this book. And I have to tell you that I read this book literally in one sitting. I didn't sleep. I, it just captured me. It's the hardest book, I think, 
that I could ever try to summarize, so I won't try to do that. But it is so rich and so prescient, and what Salman has been able to do is capture our time and I happen to know that you've been you were writing this way before our time right now. Yeah, yeah. But I, you captured so much of what's so important today, right at the moment. But the question I have for you is, since you you obviously it's a nod to Don Quixote. Um, so basically, where did it come from? Yeah. Where you decided to bring Cervantes four hundred years into the future? You know, it was it was a, it was a strange kind of serendipitous thing that, that four or five years ago, I think it's 1915, was the double anniversary of Shakespeare and Cervantes. And so that a lot of us going to book festivals, you know, were being asked to talk about these two giants, you know, and and I, I had been asked to write something about them, about the two of them, comparing and contrasting the two of them. And I thought I'd better look at this book again because I really hadn't read it since I was about 20. So I mean, like almost half a century had passed since I had read Don Quixote. And, and what had happened in the meanwhile was a much better translation was available in English. You know, the Edith Grossman translation is, is a, a brilliant translation and, and makes the book vivid and exciting and contemporary in a way that previous translations did not, you know, and and so I actually enjoyed it enormously much more returning to it after all these years. And I had been thinking long before I thought about Cervantes, I had been thinking of some kind of a road book. And I wasn't even sure that it would be fiction. Now, in fact, I, I I had this idea that maybe I'd write a travel book, you know, in which I, in which I would like rent a car and drive across America and see what happened. And um, <laughs> well, I even uh, I even approached my my then not quite nineteen year old son, now eighteen year old, I think he was at the time. He's twenty two now, and I said, "Would he go with me?" Because I thought it might be interesting to have a different generational perspective, you know, as well as mine. And he said, yeah, he would be up for a road trip. And then after a kind of comic pause, he said, but dad, are you going to drive? <laughs> <laughs> and I was very insulted. <laughs> I said, you know, I've been driving since before you were born. What are you talking about? And he said, no, you know, I, I, I'm not sure that you should drive. And so I said, well, how about if you drive? And he said, well, then, then it's fine. So, so, so we had... We had sort of half planned out this road trip. And then I read or picked up and reread um, Don Quixote. And immediately I thought, no, I want to make it up. You know, I, I want to allow my imagination to do this journey and not just be limited by whatever happens or doesn't happen. Explain the road trip aspect of it. Well, what happens in the novel at the beginning of the novel, you, you, you heard about this character who is a traveling salesman in pharmaceuticals. And when you first meet him, he's in a red roof inn in Gallup, New Mexico, and about to be fired. Um, but meanwhile, because of his obsession with television, which I read about, he's 
what you might, what he's quotes fallen in love, unquotes, with a woman on TV who is a very famous daytime talk show host, maybe second only to Oprah Winfrey. And, and as they say these days, way out of his league. <laughs> but that doesn't stop him. He decides he's in love. She's, by the way, she's called Miss Salma R, a name which is one letter away from mine for some reason. <laughs> uh, and he decides that he's going to win her hand, and that involves getting in his Chevy Cruze and traveling across America to New York, where she is. Uh, but it's not only a physical journey. It's also a, a journey of the spirit, because he knows, or he tells himself, that in order to win the hand of the beloved, he has to prove himself to be worthy of her. And so he feels he has to undergo a sequence of personal trials, you know, in order to reach the point at which he is worth winning her hand. Well, and just as Cervantes satirized the culture of his time, yeah. what, he, what happens through this road trip is that we see kind of what happens to him yes, you during see, this road trip. I hope you see some kind of panorama of this country at this moment. You know? and, and the thing that I think, the thing that for me made the book work is that my main character, Kishat, is he's an absurd optimist. He's a kind of comical optimist where there is no reason for his optimism. I mean, such as there is no reason for him to believe that he's going to actually win the hand of this great lady, but he never loses faith. In fact, the only time he gets angry is when somebody says to him, maybe it's not going to work out. <laughs> and, you know, maybe after all this, she's going to look at you and she's going to go, you know, not really. <laughs> and at that point, he's enraged. Um, and I thought to project, to propel this optimistic hopeful man across the landscape of America in this moment, which may not be the most optimistic moment in the history of the United States, that the friction, the tension, the engagement of those two things would be, would be good. Well, and what's interesting to me, what was really interesting to me is that, you know, you didn't write this yesterday. So, but how prescient it really is, is that, you're taking people, you're taking Quixote basically, Quixote basically through, you know, Red America, through yeah. these little cities. Yeah. And I love the fact that you put the population of each city yeah. there. You know, I tell you where the population came from. Every, every time a town is mentioned in the book, whether it's a tiny little township or, or a big city, in parentheses, I say, <clears throat> I give the population. It becomes like a gag. And where it comes from is I, years ago, I read the diaries of Andy Warhol. And Andy Warhol in his diaries, every time he does anything, he tells you how much it costs. Is that right? <laughs> so, so he says, you know, took a cab uptown. <laughs> you know? right. 493. Yeah, to see, yeah, $4.95 with tip. <laughs> Went back down to CB's to see Lou, $7.95 with tip. And I thought, you know, it's hilarious that he prices his whole life. 
you know. Right. So I thought I don't want to do money because he's got money. So I'll, I'll I'll just I'll do this other gag of telling everybody wherever he arrives, you get told the population. Well, and and with Kishad, you you raise so many of the issues that we're going through right now. Yeah. For instance, there are a lot of very upsetting scenes in the book that deal with immigration, for instance. Of racism. We should say that Kishad is He's Indian is American. Indian. He's Indian American. And so he's a brown-skinned man. And I suppose we have to talk about his son. He, he invents a son by magic. Right. He's a lonely man. He's never been married. He's always wanted a child. And the son turns out to be a black and white son. Initially. Until he then becomes... Full color. Full color. <laughs> he, he, he moves from analog to digital. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and, and he's in a way more like Pinocchio than Sancho Panza. Yes. You know, he's sort of invented by his father and... And he wants to be a real live boy. And he's even, they even talk to crickets. He's even, there is a cricket. <laughs> There's a cricket that speaks Italian. I, I actually read this wondering what drugs he was on when he wrote this, <laughs> to be very no, honest. No, listen, it's very simple. <laughs> if you can imagine a time before Walt Disney, you know, there was a novel called Pinocchio True. by Carlo Collodi, written in Italian. And in that novel, there is a talking cricket. The cricket is called Grillo Parlante, which means talking cricket. Uh, and so I thought, I'm going to have the original talking cricket and not the Disney bowler hat, or top hat and umbrella version, but the Italian version. And my Italian is okay, but I wasn't so arrogant that I thought I could just write the Italian, you know. So I got a friend of mine who Roberto is Clemente, uh, Roberto Francesco Clemente, Clemente yes, the painter. Clemente. I said, "Would you just read the Italian and make sure that I that it's okay?" <laughs> and I was what what I was proud about is he only found one grammatical error, but what he did, which was much more important, was to help me idiomatically. So he would say, "Yes, what you've said is correct Italian, but that's not what people would say. <laughs> what people would say is this." And, and so I was able to, to improve the Italian with a little help. But I mean, the Italian is very clear from context, you know, it's not, it's not like, and it's only like little phrases. But yes, there's a talking- So Kishat has So Kishat has this sidekick who unlike, and in the way that Kishat is not like Don Quixote because Don Quixote is melancholy, you know, and my Kishat is hopeful and smiling, you know, in the same way, Sancho Panza, first of all, is, a, is an adult. Secondly, is incredibly real. He's very earthy and grounded, etc. You know, Don Quixote has his head in the clouds, but Sancho Panza has his feet on the ground. You know, and, and that, that's the nature of their relationship. My Sancho is an imagined teenager. Yeah, he's a teenager trying to he's figure things out. Trying to figure things life. out and desperate to be real. Right. So, so what happened, and which is what I, I mean, in a way is what made me able to write the book, is that yes, the Cervantes masterpiece is a starting point. But once I had my characters, I thought, well, these are my characters, they're not his characters. And I want them to go on my journey, not his journey. You know, and so at that point, I said, I said, you know, thank you very much, Cervantes, and now we'll just put your book over here, <laughs> and we're going to go this way. 
And, and that's what happened. And uh, this way was really to try and write some kind of panoramic novel about America because the previous two novels that I wrote almost entirely, I mean like 95% took place in New York City. And, and I remember finishing The Golden House and, and saying to myself, okay, now you have to leave town. You know, now you can't stay in the 212 area code. You, know, you have to go. And, and so that's, there was a genuine desire to say there's more to America. And you do a very good job of it. You spend a lot of time in Atlanta, yeah. in Tulsa, in a bunch yeah. of other cities. Yeah, well. I mean, I, Atlanta I know pretty well because I taught at Emory as a visiting lecturer, for visiting professor for 10 years. Uh, so I got to know, yeah, there's a, there's a substantial bit of the book that happens but the, in Atlanta. But, the, but we've left something out. Um, Kishat is, is created by somebody. Yeah, there's a so second storyline. So there's story a line. second storyline going on, and that is that there is a writer who is writing, a who real writing person. Who is writing him. And, and it was completely, I didn't know it was going to happen. I and wasn't, I, and it, I think this is the first time you've ever really written about yeah, writing. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 actually, I kind of disapprove of it. Uh, I mean, I would read these books, and there's, as you know, more than one or two of them. A book in which a writer is writing a book about a writer who's writing a book, (laughs) sometimes about a writer, you know. And I I would just think, you know, stop it. Don't do that. And then I found myself doing it, quite surprisingly, because I had thought that what we'd been talking about was the book. That there, that there would be Kishat and his Sancho, and they would go on this journey across America, and they would have all kinds of adventures, uh, and they would be like in search of love, you know. And that, that, that and that's the book I thought. And then this other material started showing up. I mean, completely. I really didn't know it was coming, and I wasn't sure what it was to begin with, because what it is is there's this there's this writer who is a not very successful writer of spy novels. Right. And he's decided to, as a kind of last throw, to try and write something completely different. And then it turns out he's writing the other storyline. And then it turns out that the other storyline has a lot in common with with events in his own life that he's trying to work out in the form of this fiction. And I just, I, I really genuinely didn't know if that was a good idea or a bad idea. Well, I think it's a good idea. Well, it was a fabulous idea. Well, what I thought I would do is I thought, okay, now that it's showed up, I thought, I'm just going to, I'm going to go with it and I'm going to see where it takes me and what it gives me. But for a long time, I reserved the right with myself to, to take it all out and throw it away. Oh, really? Yeah. And then it, I discovered it was too late for that because the two storylines well, sort of merged sort of merge. together, you right. know, and... And um, then I thought, okay, I mean, I'm going to do this. So, so it it was one of those things that is kind of wonderful when it happens when you discover the book you're writing in the act of writing it, you know. And and the book that you that you end up writing is 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 rather different. Is this very new for you? How do you normally do? You normally plot your books. No, out I've a got I've got much more instinctive as the years have gone by. I started out being an architecture person, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, for example, Midnight's Children, because the the story of the central family 
is so engaged with or directly connected with historical events that you actually had to make a map. You had to say, you know, here's the history of India and Pakistan, and here's what's happening to the characters, and this, on this date, this happens, and on that date, that happens. And it would have been impossible to write the book if I hadn't made that, that plan. And then I was, had to stick with it. You know? um, so that book was very, very carefully built architecturally, you know, and and what's happened since is I've got looser, you know, and, and more willing to, to see what happens and then see if I like it. And I, you know, I had this thing with, I interviewed Toni Morrison and she was talking about her novel Jazz and saying that she kind of liked that approach to writing that, you know, that when a great jazz musician picks up his horn, he doesn't exactly know what's coming out of until he does it, you know? And, and she said that she kind of liked that. And, and I thought, well, if it's good enough for Toni Morrison, you know, it's good, it's good, <laughs> it's good enough for me. Well, and, and it does work so well in this So book. I do think there is a thing, and also you see Indian classical music, by the way, sitar, you know, the rag, etc., is also like jazz, very improvisa improvisational, you know, that, that um, yes, there's a structure, but within the structure, there's a great deal of room for the, for the musician to improvise. And I've come to think of that as what I like. And, and more and more as the books have gone on, that's been more and more a way that has become natural to me. So you're getting away from the structure getting and really away. allowing the book to sort of yeah, reveal I, itself. Yeah, you. I mean, I remember, you know, I talked to, I talked to Michael Ondaatje about this because he does this, that he starts with very little. You know, he starts with a germ or maybe two or three germs and, and he tries to see where they lead him. And, and he'll write, you know, he'll go down a pathway and then think, you know, I don't I actually don't like that. I've got to go another way. And so he'll write, he'll do all the, he'll discover the book in the act of writing the book. And so, you know, he takes like seven or eight years to write a novel. And when it comes out, it's like 200 pages long. And you think, what have you been doing with your time? <laughs> <laughs> and then Michael will forget. Not forget, but he'll let a character just sort of disappear yes, as well. Exactly. So it's not so, important to the story. Yeah, so he's, I, I'm not quite as, I'm not quite at, at that point. But, but I like the idea. I think that the way your mind works in the moment of the act of creation, you know, your mind doesn't work like that the rest of the time. Hmm. And in that moment, it can come up with things that you would never have thought of, you know, and so you end up writing a book that you couldn't have thought of. And that I like. There's a there's a chapter in the book in which Kishata and his teenage kid Sancho arrive in this town in New Jersey called Berenger. There, there's no there isn't a town in New Jersey called Berenger, but in this town, people are turning into mastodons. As they do, some of some some of them are the full mastodon, and some of them are kind of like half mastodons in green Barbara the elephant suits. Um, and as far as I know, this is not taking place in New Jersey at the present time. But but <laughs> uh, but what it was about was that I suddenly 
remembered that when I was 19 years old at university, I was cast in a production of UNESCO's great play, Rhinoceros, in which people turn into rhinoceroses. I mean, I wasn't the lead character, it's called Beringer, hence the or Beranger, hence the name of the town in New Jersey. I wasn't the lead character, I was just one of the townspeople turning into rhinoceroses. And, and because, you know, it's written as a farce, so everybody's running on and off stage all the time. And I would have to run off stage and a stagehand would stick a bit more rhinoceros on me, you know, and I'd run back on stage. And, and I was 19 or something and I didn't, I really didn't understand the play. And I remember saying to the producer, you know, what's this about? <laughs> so what is all this? <laughs> and, and he rather sweetly, gently, as if talking to a person of limited intelligence, <laughs> said, Salman, it's about fascism. Right. It's about Nazism. What he's writing about is how you can be at a moment in a small town or in a society in which your neighbors suddenly become monsters. You know, in which the people whose, whose children were playing with your children the day before yesterday, suddenly they're so alien to you that you can't talk to them, you don't recognize them, and you find them alarming. That's what it's about. And, and that yeah. is a subtext that runs through the whole novel. Yeah, and I suddenly extent. thought, oh, you know, Maybe we're there again. Right. Maybe we're back in that place. And and so this little chapter, which is in a way like a, it's deliberate on the road, they turn off the road and they have this experience. So it's a deliberately constructed like sidebar to, to the plot. But in many ways, I think it's it's the story of the book, that chapter, how we now live in a world in which we are alien to one another you know, and and alarmed by one another. Most definitely. And let's talk about some of the themes. I mean, to me, the theme of media and how media affects us yeah. is overarching in this book. Yeah. It reminds me a little bit of, there's a book that I read years and years ago by Neil Postman called Amusing Ourselves to Death. Huh. And the subtitle is Serious Discourse in the Age of Show Business. Yeah. And, and, you get that sense of just this overwhelming um, effect that the media has on yeah, Keyshot. That, that and unreality, the unreality has possessed us, you know, and and um, goes all the way to Washington. And I mean, yes, the book has a lot of fun with with like reality television and all that, you know. But 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 underneath the fun, I guess what it's trying to say is that. If you live at a time, which I think we all live in, in which these boundaries between fact and fiction have become so blurred and problematic, that people find it actually difficult to distinguish between the, the real and the untrue. You know? um, and that's a kind of dangerous situation for a society to be in. And where the line is blurred. Where the line is so blurred that you can't, any long, you know, one man's truth is another man's lie. Right. You know? um, and how do you deal with that world? How, you know, how do you navigate that world? And, and that's the world that Kishat and his Sancho have to navigate. 
love had to do with so much of this book. Yeah. There's a line that you have in it where you say, human life is mostly unhappiness. The only antidote is love. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I've always thought there's a great poem that W.H. Auden wrote just before the outbreak of World War II. In fact, the poem is called September the 1st, 1939. Right. Yeah. And has contains the famous line, we must love one another or die. You know, and I think uh, that's never been more true. I think that's what this young 16-year-old girl is telling us. You know, um, if we can't love our, ourselves and our world, etc., we will die. Right. No. If there's not and, the sense of empathy that we all yeah, have. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, I'm reluctant to become a 60s hippie, <laughs> and at which I was once, <laughs> and to say that all you need is love. <laughs> because you need other things than love. You need, for example, money. <laughs> uh, so I'm not completely naive. But it is true that the quest for love even impossible, improbable love. Which is the central part yeah, of this book. Is, is at the heart of it, you know. That, and if you don't have that desire in your life, you got nothing. You know? and, and, um, and maybe, and Kishat keeps saying as a kind of refrain in the book, he says, love will find a way. Right. You know? and, and it may be, maybe that's true. Maybe that's true. Well, and then you also, which was stunning to me, and, and knowing that you wrote this when you wrote it, you were able to really explain in such detail the whole problem that we're having with opioids right now. Yeah. And what's going on there, even to the point of, you know, one of the characters is Smile. Yes, right? Dr. Smile. Dr. Smile. He's an evil bastard. He's an evil opioid <laughs> dealer in a sense or a pharmaceutical guy but it it very reminiscent of the Stadler group Sacklers yeah the Sacklers I mean yeah. right yeah no what happened is okay there's a sad part of this which I'll just say to you which is that that 12 years ago my youngest sister died of what was clearly opioid overdose uh, she was only 45 years old uh, and she was living in Karachi, Pakistan, so very far away. And and what can happen, you know, in a kind of diaspora family is that because the distances are so great, you lose touch with the the dailiness of people's lives. You know, so so I had no idea. I had no idea that she was so dependent on mm. these things. And then after she passed away, you know, her bathroom cabinet was like a pharmacy. It was all like a Percocet and Vicodin and Oxy and all these things. Um, and of course, I felt terrible because I felt, you know, she's my sister. I should have, and I'm her older brother, and I, I, I should have known. And so it became personal. And I started digging into it way back then. This is 12 years ago. And so, I mean, I had found out quite a lot about Johnson and Johnson and the Sacklers and all this, you know, qu quite a while ago. And for a long time, I felt that the thing that was worrying about this was that it was this invisible epidemic, you know, that people were dying all over the place and there was almost nothing being said about it. Now, now of course, it's, it's slightly different. Um, 
And then I thought, I found this story of this Indian doctor who was a crook, an Indian-American doctor who, in, in my novel, there's an Indian-American doctor who's a crook, and his business is, his pharmaceutical business is based in, in the Atlanta area, but the real person on, from whom I took the story was, was in, more in the Chicago area. Anyway, there's a man called John Kapoor, and he, his company, invented this um, very powerful Opioid called, uh, which is a, was a fentanyl. Spray. It was a lingual. Yeah, it was you, you spray it under your tongue, and and by spraying it under your tongue, gets into your system faster. So it's it, and it was designed for a perfectly decent medical function, which was to relieve pain in terminal cancer patients, um, and for that, it's valuable, but because he wasn't content with that, he started paying sums of money to doctors across America to prescribe it uh, what's called off-label, which means for things that it's not intended to be prescribed for, including recreational use. And, and in order to persuade the doctors, he hired a sales force out of strip clubs. Um, a sales force was hired entirely on the basis of its sexual attractiveness, <laughs> both male and female, by the way. And he would send these, these gorgeous salespeople out to do like lap dances for doctors. Uh, and then they would sign up. Sure, where do I sign? <laughs> and, and it was something you couldn't, you know, like you can't make it up. Why is this happening? Why is it happening? You know? And I thought maybe we've, we've created this society in which, in theory, we have a hundred ways of being in touch with each other every day. And actually, we're maybe more isolated than we ever were. You know, uh, and, and the subject of loneliness and depression, it seemed to me, was the subject through which I could understand this epidemic. You know? um, anyway, so that there's, yeah, that's in the book too. That's the bit that's not so funny as well. Yeah, well, I mean, I, you know, for me, not only because of this, this family tragedy, but just in general, the subject of family has always been very close to the center of much of what I've written. And, and, and in this book, I wanted to talk about love, which was not necessarily romantic love. Let's say romantic love in the novel is represented by Kishot's comic obsession with Salma R. You know, right. uh, which, by the way, doesn't work out the way you think it will. <laughs> uh, but other kinds of love, loving relationships, parents and children, brothers and sisters, you know, that I thought was quite near the emotional heart of the book. So in both the storylines, both of the Kishot storyline and of his ostensible author, they're both in the middle of family crises involving both things, generational things, parents and children, but also sibling uh, crises. And and so the subject of if you can heal things that are broken and if, if there are things that are forgivable or are there things which are unforgivable, uh, that's, that's one of the questions in the book. And actually, I wrote about it once before. Like when I, in the Satanic Verses, there's a short, there's a small passage, which is a story. It's not even a page, I think. Uh, it's a story that one character tells another character. And the story is about a man and a woman who are friends. They've never had a, any kind of romantic relationship, but they're good friends. 
And the man gives the woman, as a token of their friendship, he gives her a hideous little glass vase. It has no value and it looks awful, <laughs> but it represents their friendship. And then they have a fight. And in the middle of the fight, she picks up the glass and smashes, the vase and smashes it. And they never talk to each other again. And then time passes and she's dying. And she sends a friend as a messenger to the guy. And, so, and he says, the only person in the world she wants to see is you and will you come? And he says, she should have thought about that before she broke the vase. <laughs> <laughs> so now the question is, which side of that story are you on? Right. 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 <laughs> that I would suspect that most of us would, be, would feel that he was wrong. Right. And that, and that forgiveness trumps everything. But the other, the other, uh, another thing that I found really appealing was the nostalgia, the, the looking back. Um, you have Kishat and the author, and just by chance, you as you. well, yeah. are also from the same neighborhood in Bombay, yes. if I'm not mistaken. The same tiny neighborhood, like, like 12 houses, uh, on, on a hill where I grew up and where both the author that I invented and the character that he invents. We all come from there. <laughs> uh, and by the way, I've written about it before because in Midnight's Children, that's where the Salim and, and his family grow up, except that in Midnight's Children, I fictionalized it. I changed the names of all the buildings and, and the neighborhood. I, I fictionalized it. This time I thought, you know what? I'm not going to fictionalize no, it. No, in fact, the names are there. You could even, you can go to Google you Earth. Can, yes, you go to Google you Earth and find you find them. them. <laughs> you find them. No, there was this, there was this guy, the property developer in, in Bombay in the, in the, the years just before the end of the British Empire. And he was very, he was Indian, but he was very Anglophile. So he built all these houses and he gave them comical British names. He named them after palaces. You know, so there was a, the house I grew up in was called Windsor Villa. <laughs> and next door to it, there was Sandringham Villa. <laughs> and then there was Balmoral, you know, et cetera. And then he kind of ran out of palaces. <laughs> so he had to think of other British things. So, so there was a house that he called Christmas Eve. <laughs> <That's great. laughs> and I, anyway, I grew up in this, this crazy little group of houses. And, it, and both of them do. And back then, you know, in the 50s, that was the heart of Bombay, that area, what was then called Bombay. Now the city has grown so much uh, and grown away to the north that the center of the, 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 the weight of the city has shifted, you know, away from this area, which now feels almost like a, like a nostalgic remnant, right. you know, and... Um, but this was a way for you to revisit. It was a way for me to say about these characters that that's where they come from that's the thing that's like the origin point and it's as it's also my origin point and that it might also be a kind of farewell because that india doesn't exist anymore right. that city is not like it used to be and these people have left that city very very long ago including you including me and their lives have been elsewhere and so although that's the point of origin it's also you know, it's a long time ago. It's, 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 it's way, way in the past. And although it means a lot, it doesn't determine 
your life right. anymore. You know, and I thought also that you know this faction, this because these characters, almost all the characters in the novel, are immigrants. They're most mostly mostly Indian American, but one or two others. But and I wanted to talk about that with the effect of migration on the migrant. You know, and a part of that has to do with what you leave behind. Right. You know, uh, and a part of it has to do with how you accommodate yourself to where you arrive. And so both those things, you know, are part of it. What, what, what's throughout the novel as well is clearly your interest in science fiction too. Mm. So talk a little bit about that. Well, I started off with science fiction, you know. I mean, my, my very first much despised novel, um, Grimus, is a sort of science fiction novel. And, and it's because I had been a huge consumer of science fiction, you know, as a young person. So it felt natural to me to to go in that in that direction. And strangely, with that book, almost everybody hated it. You know, ex, ex, uh, I mean, except Ursula K. Le Guin, who loved it <laughs> and wrote a kind of rave review of it. And I've I've, I've always loved her ever since. <laughs> and, um, and especially as she was a writer that I had loved anyway. You know, so to see her. Um, getting it, you know, meant something. Uh, science fiction is a great form for the exploration of ideas. And who are some of the readers that uh, some of the well, writers I mean, see, that you would recommend? There's two to, levels of science fiction. There's like kind of literary science fiction. And then there's hardcore science fiction. Right. So literary science fiction is like Kurt Vonnegut, you know, Ray Bradbury, Arthur C. Clarke, Ursula Le Guin, um, Philip K. Dick, etc. Um, but then there's the real thing, where the real aficionados go. You know, there are these magazines which I used to read on very cheap paper. Uh, there was a magazine called Galaxy, that was a big science fiction magazine. There's then there are magazines. There's a magazine called Astounding. And then in small letters, science fiction. <laughs> yeah. So theoretically, it's called Astounding Science Fiction, but actually Astounding is very big. <laughs> There's another magazine called Amazing. <laughs> and in those magazines, you read the hardcore stuff, where there are these people with wonderful names. You know, Clifford D. Simak. Oh, sure. James yeah. Blish. Where Fred, would you put Jose Philip Farmer? Would he be Jose part Philip of that? Farmer, yes, who wrote the, who ghost wrote the novel of Kilgore Trout. Oh, did he really? Yes. Oh, I didn't know. When there, there's a novel called Venus on the Half Shell. Yes, by, it was, by, we thought it was Vonnegut. By Kilgore Trout, but right. it's written by Philip Jose Farmer oh, <laughs> after Vonnegut. And there's, you know, Frederick Pohl and C.M. Kornbluth. Right. And L. Sprague, I always like L. Sprague de Camp. <laughs> so that was a great name. I would have liked to have that name. <laughs> two, two stories short stories, one by Arthur Clarke and one by this writer, Catherine McLean, who died recently, uh, had just stuck in my head. And, and both of them became very helpful in this book. I mean, I can't exactly tell you why, because it would spoil the plot. But you can tell by this <laughs> conversation, you can just sense the richness and the diversity of what goes into this book. It's in, everything, have... it's in everything. You know, I think there are only two ways to write good books. One is to write an almost nothing book. 
where, where you take like one beautiful strand of story and you kind of turn it in the light and see what you can do with it. That's, that works. That's, you know, Jane Austen, W.G. Zabald, right. books, writers like that. Or you could try and write these everything books, which try to take, scoop up a huge amount of the world. I love that. I'm going to create a new section in the bookstore called Everything, everything Books, books yeah. because yeah. I think it's yeah. a really apt yeah. description. Everything Books are like Charles Dickens. Yes, of course. You know, Saul Bellows, Augie Marsh. Yes. Um, you know, these are the books that, that Henry James called them loose baggy monsters. <laughs> you know, um, but that's because he, he wasn't like that. Um, I've always felt that I'm on the side of the everything books, you know, that this kind of encyclopedic urge to try and say, okay, let's, t let's talk about the whole of the world, not just this corner of it, but all of it. And Im the impossible thing is impossible to do. You heard it here, the everything book. The that everything is the book. New, yeah. Yeah. the new categorization. It's, so this is what I've been trying to do my whole life, is to write the everything book. And and this, and, and Kishat is that. And for those who haven't read it, you're in for a gigantic treat. So one of the things I'd like to do is get your sense of what the hell is going on now in the world? What is happening? I mean, meltdown. <laughs> <laughs> I hope. <laughs> I mean, I because it's happening here, it's happening in England, yeah, it's happening but I mean, all I, over. But when you look at these 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 monsters we've elected, they are they both. I mean, whether it's whether it's the horrible Boris Johnson, you know, the classic, the definition of the upper class jerk, <laughs> <laughs> the old Etonian old Etonian bully and creep. Did you tell me that his sister has a story? And yeah, his sister's in the paper today denouncing him. His brother denounced him last <laughs> week. You know, it's, a, it's a good family. <laughs> um, um, but both of them, whether it's Trump or Johnson, seem to be melting down before our eyes. You know, they, they seem to be in a state of hysteria. Um, in the case of Trump, it's quite pleasing to watch. <laughs> um, I don't know what's going to happen. You know, um, the, the thing that worries me about the, I mean, I'm very glad about the impeachment because I think, you know, about time. If they can't make it stick, he will win re-election. Mm. Yeah. So, so this is a kind of, very, very high stakes gamble. You know? Right. If they can make it stick, then the world might change in a better direction. We might have to put up with eight or nine months of Mike Pence, <laughs> but I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> because I think one of, the, one of the things that Mike Pence is not is electable. I would agree. <laughs> so, <laughs> so if we have to have a kind of interregnum, of this man who can't be alone in the room with a woman, unless his wife <laughs> is, unless his, his wife, wife has there. to be there. Right. He could be in your book somewhere, I think. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so, but you know, it's it, it really is, you know, we're on a kind of hinge moment, right? Uh, if it if they can, I mean, obviously the Senate will not 
go the way that the house goes. But the question is public opinion. Well, and then and then from your perch as former uh, head of Penn, yeah. what do you see happening in terms of literature? How, what is the health of that? And well, it's I, I think, see it as a very as a bookseller. I see the diversity is yeah. more than ever before. Exactly. I mean, I think actually, never mind Trump and all that. Right. I think this is a really exciting time in American literature, and the excitement comes from two groups who have traditionally been marginal. One is people of color, and the other is new immigrants. You know, so on the one hand, you have this extraordinary tidal wave of, of brilliant black writers, whether it's Jasmine Ward or ta Coates or Tracy K. Smith or Natasha Trethaway or you know, in every field, whether it's poetry or theater or nonfiction or fiction, there are, there are younger black writers redefining the American novel. Many of them, in their own opinion, the children of Toni Morrison. And Very I think that's, so. I think, why her death recently unleashed such an extraordinary uh, amount of grief. Yeah, we had an event where we showed the Toni Morrison um, documentary. With Timothy's? Yeah, Timothy's. Timothy Greenfield Sanders' right. film. And yeah. Edvige Dantecott spoke yes. before it. Yes. And you could just sense no, I the mean, meaning, how meaningful she no, was. Yeah, I mean, this is, she was of, everyone's mother. Right. You know, and I mean, literary mother, you know. And, but so there's, so there's that. And then there's this other phenomenon. You know, American literature has always had a very strong immigrant dimension, but but historically that was either Eastern European Jewish immigration, Isaac Mashevis Singer, and, right. and you know the kind of whole Bellow, Roth, Malamud, Mailer, etc. But now there's immigrants, American immigrants from everywhere. The Caribbean. From- yeah, yeah. You know, there's like. I mean, just if you look at who won the MacArthur Awards the other day, right. Ocean Vuong, right. you know, Vietnamese American, um, you have Jumba Lahiri, South Asian American, uh, you know, Junot Diaz, who, uh, who's from, the, you know, from the, the Dominican Republic. Right. And, uh, and I mean, the list is very long. You know, that, that, that these people coming, I mean, seeing themselves as American writers, bringing into American literature, not only the stories of other parts of the world, but but the storytelling traditions of other parts of the world, the ways of telling. Uh, and I mean, it's trans- it's transformative, I think. I would agree completely. Yeah. And, and that's, it's exciting to watch. And I find, I find, and I've been living here 20 years now, and I mean, I've been a citizen for a few years, um, I got a, became a citizen in time to vote in 2016. Yay. And yeah, that went well. You know. <laughs> uh, but But you're in New York. Yeah, so but, it doesn't yeah, matter. New York where 85 Why don't you 80, move to Miami? 85% of us voted <laughs> voted against Trump. Uh, but what I'm saying is that I felt looking at all this, at this phenomenon, you know, I thought well that's me too. You know, I mean, I'm from somewhere else. I'm not white Caucasian. And I can bring, as an older writer, 
some of that same sensibility, you know, and, and it's, I think it's very exciting in a way to be inspired by writers much younger than yourself. You know, Tommy Orange, right. you know, these people. I met Tommy Orange, very, I tell you a sweet Tommy Orange story. I, I was at the National Book Awards when he, when he won. He's the author of There, He, he there. wrote There, There, he's Native American, um, brilliant young writer. And I, I can't, uh, anyway, we went out for a drink afterwards, a group of us, and Tommy, you know, he just won. Maybe had just a tiny little bit too much to drink. And, and there was a moment when he sat next to me with his head on my shoulder. I, I, I talked about loving me. <laughs> I thought, That's I thought you know, go home, go home, kid. <laughs> it's like but, it's like Sancho. It's like, it's like it was sort of, a little sort bit of, like that. It, it was sort of like that. But I mean, I think it's delightful to look at this huge burst of talent. Yeah. Coming out of American literature. It's astonishing. To yeah, see. I'm glad you see that too yeah. as a bookseller because... And people are buying their books and reading yeah. their books and people are discussing yeah. them. It's a very, very exciting time. Yeah, and, 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 and actually it has nothing to do with the politics of the moment. Right. You know, um, I think in a separate part of the forest, there's a lot of us wondering how to respond to the insanity of the moment. You know, um, and and I mean, I guess this book is a little bit an attempt to 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 do that. And and what I think is that when the world gets this strange, the novel has to decide how strange it has to become <laughs> in order to represent that world. Right. You know, and so this is it's it's pretty strange. This world. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, it's so strange that you know normally. When I'm writing, I don't show it to any, I don't show anybody, you know, uh, because I think work in progress is very fragile, you know. And if you show somebody something that you know isn't there yet, and they say, "Well, it isn't there yet," then it upsets you. So, so I wait till I feel I've finished. But this time, this book is so odd, particularly with the two storylines and all that. That when I'd written about sixty or seventy pages of a first version of it. I took a deep breath and I, I asked my legendary, ferocious agent, Andrew Wiley, to have a look at it. And I said, I said, I, and I said, Andrew, look, don't tell me it's weird, I know it's weird. I said, you have to tell me if it's, if it's good weird or bad weird, because I'm not sure. No. And Andrew has the excellent quality of being ruthlessly honest. <laughs> You know, he can't, he's an awful liar. So if he's trying to bullshit you, you could see he's bullshitting right. you. You know, so, so, so I thought, at least I'm going to get a straight read. You know, so I gave it to him and he called me back. And he said, well, I, he said, there's not enough of it here. I can't tell where you're going with this. You could go in a number of directions and I'm not sure where, wh wh what that is. He said, well, I can tell you with the pages I'm looking at. He said, I think it's the funniest thing you've ever written. And I thought, oh, well, that's comforting. Funny is good. Because my general view is that if you can make people laugh, you can tell them anything. You know? And also that it's harder to make people laugh than to make them cry. Uh, a mutual friend of ours who is Salman's editor just recently died. Yeah. And her name is Susan Camel. And I just want to recognize her here tonight. I, for sure. Because she, she was the head of Roundup House. Um, 
She was the editor of so many of us uh, who depended on her opinion. It was you, Ta-Nehisi Me, Ta-Nehisi Coates. Me, Ta-Nehisi Coates, Thea Obrecht, Elizabeth Strout, um, any number of people. We're just talking about this publishing season. That's just one publishing right. season. You know, uh, she was a genius editor and also kind of like the nicest human being you'll ever meet. Absolutely. And she was, I mean, I saw when her obituary was published in the Times that they had a photograph of me and her. Right. And I thought, we're looking very young in this picture. <laughs> <laughs> and I looked at it, it was, it was 12 years ago. Right. You know, so this is, that's four or five books. I mean, we worked together for a long time and I didn't always agree with her, but I always thought that her reading was so smart that I would have to think very seriously about everything she said. She was one of the greats and uh, a huge loss yeah, to American She came with this culture. book. No, this is not just your editor. This is the woman running the publishing company. She had amazing pressure on her time. And yet for her writers, she would make infinite time. So with this book, she, you know, she read it like four times. And then she came over and she sat with me across my desk from me for six and a half hours. Wow. And we went through it literally page by page. And then she sent me her, uh, her marked up manuscript which was always a problem because she would mark up her manuscript in pencil, which was quite faint pencil. <laughs> and her handwriting was borderline illegible. Right? So you could hardly see it on the page. And when you could see it, you couldn't read it. So I would have to literally use a magnifying glass in order to see what the hell these words were. You know? um, but anyway, so she would do that for all of us. That's you know? remarkable. She would do that for all of us. And you make infinite time. Whenever you needed her, she would be there. That's a kind of editing that's just not done as much. No, anymore. she's one of the last. I mean, somebody said in her after she died that that her death represents the end of a certain generation of publishing. Right. You know, she, the last of the great old school editors. So I think you it's know? proper that we sort of dedicate this evening to Susan Campbell. I would like very much to do that, and she was. One of the one of the one special of the people in the world of books. Well, I think I can speak for everybody in this room when we say that what you we have all benefited from what you do. Thank so you. I want to thank you for an amazing evening. Thank you. And thank you for thank you. for writing such a spectacular book. Salman Rushdie. <laughs>